It is a big privilege for me to introduce to you Dr. Steve Dunmire from Houghton College. And Steve is a ridiculously talented uh, musician, and he'll hate every word of this, but he is. Um, he's a great communicator, and he's just a lot of fun to be around. I've gotten to know Steve and his family at Houghton um, over a few summer camps, and over at Crosswinds, we had him there as well. But uh, what sticks out to me to Steve is that he's just a, he's, he's a, real, a real guy, authentic follower of Jesus who loves Jesus. But uh, what really impacts me, too, with Steve is that he loves his family, and he shows it. And so, would you give a, a big, warm, life spring welcome to Dr. Steve Dunmire? Some of us are allergic to what ifs. There's actually a professor at the University of Quebec who's done some research on this, and he's developed this uh, continuum of what he calls the uncertainty of. Or, What's the phrase now here? I've lost it. The, the uncertainty scale of the spectrum where he says, for some of us, you can handle a little bit of uncertainty and it really doesn't affect you very much in your workplace, in your life, uh, in your health. You can handle a little bit of uncertainty, some questions lingering. And it really doesn't bother you psychologically or physically. Others of us, myself included, it's like a food allergy. You know how for some people you can eat almonds and peanuts and shellfish and have no issues. But for some people, just a single peanut can wreak havoc on their health and great significant serious health issues. And he says, uncertainty for some people is like a food allergy in that way. The, same, the very same thing might not affect you, but it might just totally cause my life to begin to unravel. And so he says there's this, this spectrum of ways we respond to uncertainty. And, and that there are some people who are high on the intolerance of uncertainty scale. That's the phrase I was looking for, the intolerance of uncertainty scale. Uh, you know, a, a sign that someone in your family is high on the intolerance of uncertainty scale is if last month they were snooping around looking for Christmas presents, looking at closets and attics and, and hideaways. Or if as soon as a present went under the tree, someone was shaking a present that was appeared there, they, they might just be high on the intolerance of uncertainty scale. If someone had to go see Star Wars on opening night, they might just be high on the intolerance of uncertainty scale. Uh, it's actually, uncertainty is what makes for a good book or makes for a, a binge-worthy show on Netflix. Not because we like uncertainty, but because we hate uncertainty so much, we have to see that uncertainty resolved. That's why you have to click on the next episode. You have to turn the next page. You have to read the next chapter. It's just, oh, I just got to see what happens. I've got to wait for the next season to come out. Uh, and at one time or another, many of those of us like me who are high on the intolerance of uncertainty scale are most likely to ask God for a sign. You're presented with a difficult decision. You've got a couple things you need to choose between. Uh, and so you ask God for some kind of a sign. You just don't want to mess up. You don't, just don't want to make the wrong choice. And so you ask God to, to tip his hand in some way or another. Or you're facing a significant health issue, a health concern, and you're just asking God for some kind of sign, some, some evidence that he can reveal in your life that things are going to be okay. Or any number of issues in your life where you might ask God for a sign, just some little indication that he's with you and you're not going to uh, collapse in a heap at the end of this whole thing. Even Abraham Lincoln waited on a sign from God. On September 17, 1862, he took the Battle of Antietam as a sign from God that he was on the side of the Union forces. Battle of Antietam was a, a bloody uh, battle, but a decisive victory for the Union forces. Anybody ever heard of the Battle of Antietam before? Yeah, all right. Some history students in the room. And uh, he took that as a sign from God that, that he was with them. Within five days of the Battle of Antietam, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. 
he joint, told the joint cabinets there, somebody sitting in that room said, wrote this in his diary afterwards, that, that Lincoln took that as an indication of the divine will that it was his duty to move forward in the cause of the emancipation. And as a result, went into effect on January 1st that year. As a result of that emancipation proclamation, three million slaves in our nation were set free. Amazing how that changed the, the course of our nation and changed history. And he saw that as a sign from God. Well, in the Gospel of Luke, God shows up and tips his hand uh, several different times. First to Zechariah. He comes to Zechariah and tells Zechariah as he's on duty in the temple that his wife Elizabeth, even though they're well past childbearing years, is going to have a child and this will, his name should be John and he will go prepare the way for the Lord. Then the angels appear a second time, this time to Mary, telling Mary that she'll conceive a child and by the Holy Spirit and this child will go forth in holiness. And then the angels appear a third time to Joseph, telling Joseph that don't lose your mind. I know that you've got good reason to be suspicious, but don't be suspicious. Don't leave Mary, uh, that this is a thing of God. This child's been conceived by the Holy Spirit. So first to Zechariah, second to Mary, third to Joseph, and then the angels appear a fourth time to the shepherds. Are the shepherds pregnant too? Uh, what? No, that's a joke, by the way. No, the shepherds aren't pregnant. The, the sheep probably at some point or another are pregnant, some combination thereof, but the shepherds aren't. So what is going on here? Why these shepherds? One of these things is not like the other. So why, of all the people that receive this angelic visitation, are the, the, the shepherds on this list? In fact, not only do the, 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 the angels come and visit the shepherds, but this is the last time in the Gospel of Luke that angels appear at all until the night Christ is betrayed. The other Gospels record angels showing up at the temptation or other times, but this is the last time for Luke that he mentions angels showing up at all until the night Christ is betrayed by Judas. Not only that, but this is the only time in the whole New Testament that I find a great multitude of angels appearing there to the shepherds out in the field. So what's the big deal? Why these shepherds? Of all the ways he could have communicated this message, why this way to these shepherds? Why these shepherds? What's significant about these shepherds there in Bethlehem? Uh, why communicate to them this way? And what does that reveal to us about the heart of God? And does this provide any comfort to those of us who are high on the intolerance of uncertainty skill, who are allergic to what ifs? Well, again, my name is Steve Dunmire. Thanks to Chris for that warm introduction. That's the kind of introduction that you want to bail out and get out of here because there's no way you can live up to that kind of an introduction. I love Chris Stevens, good friend, and uh, appreciate his ministry and was excited for this chance to be a partner in crime with him again this Sunday. Thanks to Pastor Bill for the chance to fill in for him this Sunday. And uh, he, he told me that one of the first calls he got to make coming in as pastor was to hire Chris Stevens. That's a great start. You know you got a good pastor and makes a, hits a home run like that. But I uh, hear wonderful things about the ministry that's happening here and the uh, ministry that you're, you're experiencing here, the way God is moving in your midst. And so it's a real thrill and privilege to be here. My name is Steve Dunmire. I've been married to my wife Tammy for going on 16 years. We have four children. My oldest is Hannah here in the fr- front row with me. And 12 going on 35, and uh, no, t- 12 going on 24 maybe. But, uh, and we have three boys, twin boys, who just turned 11 on Wednesday, and uh, a five-year-old son who's Joshua, who's, who's not feeling well this morning, so the rest of my family's back nursing him through this cold. Uh, but again, it's a great privilege to be with you. My, uh, I serve as Director of Ministry Resources at Houghton College down the other side of Letchworth State Park, beautiful part of New York State. And before that, I was a pastor for 12 years in the Buffalo Niagara region serving churches in the suburbs, in small towns, and in the inner city as well. And this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, which is traditionally a passage we look at during Advent, during Christmas, leading up to, to Christ's birth. But I'm hoping if we pull it out of December 
and place it down here in January and, and take some time looking at it today that we can see some things with fresh eyes, look at it with fresh eyes, with hearing the Lord's voice maybe in a fresh way as we unpack this passage together. So Luke chapter 2, beginning of verse 8, is where we'll be this morning. And can I pray for us as we jump in? You are good. And you've always been faithful to us. You've been faithful through many generations. May we experience in this new year your faithfulness and your presence in a fresh and powerful way. And as we open up your word, may you speak to us. May we hear the sweet whisper of your spirit wooing us, challenging us, challenging us and pushing us. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. Pray in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Beginning of verse 8, it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared at the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what, they had, what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. Leith Anderson says that when he was growing up, his mother loved to cook lamb chops. And he said one of the best parts about growing up and moving out of his parents' house was that he no longer needed to eat lamb chops. I uh, cut that right out of the, the bill. Maybe you love lamb, and no offense if you do. He says... Uh, going on, he says, he's apparently in the majority because McDonald's hasn't had very much success with the McMutton. <laughs> and I understand we have a shepherd here in our midst this morning, so I, I feel like I'm out of my depth speaking about shepherding with a shepherd in the room. But part of the struggle for so many of us is we aren't shepherds and we don't have a cousin who's a shepherd. Apparently, you go to church with someone who's a shepherd, so you've got more power to you. Uh, my father was an IRS auditor my whole life, which made him really popular at parties. Uh, <laughs> We'd be in school and the teachers would ask what your parents did for a living and you kind of go through and I'd share that and kind of duck my head. And for some reason, my grades always sank after that. But, uh, but you know, similar thing. To be a tax collector going to church as a kid, he was always singled out every sermon and so now we're going to single out the shepherd back there in the sound booth. But for many of us, we don't know, besides maybe like petting zoos, we don't have much firsthand experience with sheep and shepherding. We happen to have some sheep who pasture about half a mile from our house. But I live in Allegheny County, where that's kind of normal fare. Uh, I've also got some Amish families that live about two miles from my house. So, you know, that's just how things roll out there. But for most of us, we don't have that kind of firsthand experience. So to kind of step into the shoes of of Scripture and to understand part of what's going on here, we need to understand some background on these shepherds and the shepherding. And one of the things we could look at is how these sheep in this pasture with these shepherds were most likely being raised to be sacrificed in the temple. And there's some, some evidence that could show that these sheep, that's why they're being raised, given their proximity to Bethlehem and, and the ceremonial law that surrounded that, there's a good chance that these very sheep 
were destined for sacrifice of sins in the temple. And there's something really poignant and beautiful about the Lord sending the angels to that field of all the fields, of all the places he could go, that these sheep who are being raised to be slaughtered for sac- for the, for the, to pay the price for sin, they come and announce that the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God has come who's going to take away the sins of the world. And we could talk about that. We could talk about how these shepherds were really low on the social structure, the social ladder. Uh, they're really despised and smelly and, and kind of off on their own and, and disregarded. They've had low reputation. There's even some evidence that shepherds weren't even allowed to testify in a court of law because they were seen as being so unreliable and so, such, of such poor reputation that their testimony wouldn't matter for anything. So th- there's something wonderful and, and, and so gracious about God coming to these people of all people, not going to kings and powers and principalities, not going to the wealthy, but to these people who are just seen as the lowest of the low on the social ladder. But my, personally, my personal favorite working theory of why God went to the shepherds it was out of habit. My wife changed jobs this year. We both work at Houghton College and she changed from one position to another this past fall. And she said it took her weeks to not park in the wrong spot. And she'd drive onto campus and automatically just pull into her old parking spot and back out and pull back in and go around to the other spot. I'm guessing she hasn't confessed this, but I'm guessing she also went in and tried her key on the old door and then realized the key didn't work anymore. I'm notorious for doing this. I'm sure none of you ever do this, but I'm always getting in the car and driving in the wrong direction or taking the long way to get someplace. And I'm seeing, no nudging the people next to you. This is, this is a safe place. This place, judgment-free zone. But uh, I'm always doing that, getting in the car. My wife and my family will say, why are you driving this way? Well, that's a good question. Why am I driving this way? Just out of habit. And, and there's a sense that maybe God just went to the shepherds out of habit because at several key points in history, God went to shepherds. When God established his covenant with Abraham, and told Abraham that he would be a father of many nations, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands on the beach. Uh, Abraham, at that point in his life, was a shepherd. And when God was moved and heard the cry of his people in slavery in Egypt, and his heart broke for that, and he took up to take action and called out to Moses through the burning bush and told Moses he's going to go and defy the prophet, uh, defy Pharaoh and lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. On that day in his life, Moses was a shepherd. And when God's heart broke for the nation of Israel and they were dissatisfied with King Saul as their king and the Lord was dissatisfied with King Saul as king of the nation of Israel and he moved for Samuel to go and anoint a new king, at that day in his life, David, when he was anointed as the new king of Israel, as the future king of Israel, was a shepherd boy. Almost missed out on the whole ceremony because while his brothers were being interviewed, he was out there tending to the sheep. And so it's almost like in this moment as Christ is born in Bethlehem, God pocket dials the shepherds. Just because it's what he does, you know, pulling into the wrong parking spot, calling them by accident. But in fact, instead it reveals a strong bias that the Lord has for shepherds. It's one of the primary ways he relates to us. God doesn't primarily relate to us as a teacher, as a rabbi pouring information into us, even though he has the very best information on everything. One of the, one of the things that's blown my mind the last few years, as Dallas Willard says that, uh, you can reveal a lot of what people think about Jesus by whether they think he's smart or not. And he's the very smartest person who ever lived. He is master because he is maestro. And even though Jesus and the Lord is the most, most intelligent and smartest person ever, he doesn't primarily relate to us as teacher and rabbi. He doesn't primarily relate to us as king, even though he is king of kings and lord of lords. 
He doesn't primarily relate to us as judge, even though he could, and even though he would judge the quick and the dead. Instead, one of the most common ways that the Lord chooses to take us an image for how he relates to us is as a shepherd. One of the most beloved teachings of Jesus is him describing himself as the good shepherd. And he contrasts it to the, the hired hand. He says, I'm not like the hired hand who run as soon as trouble comes. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And, you know, what good is it a shepherd who lays down his life for sheep, right? A, a dead ship, shepherd isn't a very good shepherd. But instead, what's being revealed in that statement is the sense that when, when trouble comes, and yeah, trouble's still going to come, even if you have the good shepherd, he takes it personal. When trouble comes your way, if the Lord is your shepherd, he takes that trouble personal, and he doesn't stand aloof and feel bad for you from a distance. No, he gets involved in the trenches of your trouble and lifts you out of that. So there's all this beautiful symbolism tied up here in, in the Lord going with the, by the angels to the shepherds out in this field that night to announce that the Christ is born. Uh, but what they're most famous for is the sign that comes. Look at that sign again in verse 12. Verse 12, it says, This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, as far as signs from God go, I don't think this is the greatest sign from God. You know, if we were to fill out, I just had a, I was at a doctor's appointment this week, and as I was leaving, they gave me one of these forms to fill out and send back to evaluate their service. If God gave us one of these forms to fill out about evaluating how this, this sign from God works out, I think probably on a scale of 1 to 10, a baby lying in a manger, it's like a 5 out of 10, you know? Not the best, not the worst, but a sign from God is really only convincing to us insofar as it overcomes our uncertainty, right? Insofar as it overcomes our fear. And of all the things that he could reveal about Jesus, of all the signs he could give them, you know, this might be a good time for a pillar of fire or something like that, you know, a burning bush, anything, a baby wrapped in a manger. And in fact, studies have proven just how much we dislike uncertainty. And they've, they've done this multiple times. They've repeated this study several times where they, they line people up and they say, we can give you an electrical shock right now or we can wait a couple hours and maybe not give you an electrical shock later. Uh, so take your choice. Would you rather have an electrical shock right now or wait a little while and maybe not get one later? Maybe, maybe not. And over and over again, the resounding answer is people would definitely choose to get an electrical shock right now rather than may, to maybe get one later on. Uh, which is kind of, like, we're messed up. <laughs> Why, why, why would we choose that? But this, one of the studies says people feel better about knowing, uh, better about knowing what's coming, even if it's painful, than not knowing. That they'd feel better about knowing. Just give me my medicine right now. Give me that electrical shock right now. Sitting around for the rest of the morning, waiting to see if maybe I'm going to get an electric shock later on, will be harder on me than than just getting here right now. The uncertainty, in other words, is harder on us than whatever pain can come our way. One of the worst experiences for us to experience is uncertainty. I'd just rather get the electrical shock right now. This is why when, when people are told, you know, you've got this injury, we can put you through rehab, we want you to do some rehab and some physical therapy, but maybe at the end of this you still might need to have the surgery later on. I've had friends who said, I'll just take the surgery right now, just to get it over with. Uh, let's expedite the suffering and get it over with. Um, in other words, I'll take the electrical shock right now rather than wait for it later. And whenever we face uncertainty, we always want to have that uncertainty resolved above, every, above any other option. And until recently, I never noticed this about the disciples, or about, sorry, about the shepherds. The shepherds are really only shown this small slice. 
Just this little part. When you think about who Jesus is and what he came to do, we're talking about the person who will raise the dead, who will give sight to the blind, the deaf will hear again, the paralyzed will walk and leap, and he'll gather great multitudes. Even when he's trying to find a day off, great multitudes, thousands of people will come and gather on him and be taught. He'll go through communities and heal their sick. He'll challenge the powers and principalities. He'll be an enemy of the state even though he's got no place to lay his head. And despite all of the power and the splendor of who Jesus is, all that the angels give the shepherds is just this tiny little slice. A child in a manger. Not the most convincing sign from God that they possibly could have gotten that night. In fact, the shepherds, the, the shepherds are told by the angels that this is Savior, Christ or Messiah, and Lord. Three huge words that describe who Jesus is. But most likely that night out in that field for those shepherds, those three words raise more questions than answers. Savior, Christ, Messiah, Savior. What in the world? What is going on here? What does this child mean? And of all the signs they might have asked for, all they get is a babe wrapped in a manger. And likewise, in our lives, I think about all the uncertainty we face. You wonder if your kids are going to turn out okay. You... Worry if your marriage is going to make it through this rough patch. You're wondering if your job is as secure as you hope it is. You're asking if that treatment is really going to cure the cancer or if the surgery is really going to heal what's wrong. You're wondering if you're ever going to go back to normal again. You're wondering if the hard work you're putting in at school will pay off in a good job, literally. You worry if the bills will ever make the playoffs again. And we've got these big questions looming over us and big questions and the uncertainty just eats us up for lunch. And we ask God for a sign and like the shepherds, all we get is a child laying in a manger. And will that be enough to go on? I think one of the ways that the shepherds are an example for us, they're, they're people like us who have more questions than answers, who are going through the midst of uncertainty, who don't know how the story ends yet. People who don't know how the story is going to end, don't know how things are going to be resolved, and yet they believed based on just a little slice of the pie and they followed hard after Christ, even just having that little bit of information. It's a song of people, it's a story of people who are following after Christ, even without quite knowing how the story is going to end. And there's such a great story to their end to their story. But look at verse 19 and 20, that how Mary and the shepherds react to this. Verse 19, it says, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Here's something I can't help but wonder. You know, that night as the shepherds amazingly appeared there at the manger. And you got to think, Mary and Joseph didn't even know where they were going to be spending the night that night. The fact that people came looking for them in that place, is just, it had to just blow their minds. But as the shepherds arrived there and saw the child laying in a manger, and this is, by the way, one of the things that makes this a, does make this a good sign from God, is whenever you see a child laying in a manger, nobody has to ask, ooh, which baby is that? You know who that is. <laughs> We know there's only one child that has ever been laid in a manger. Thankfully, churches haven't caught up on this. Can you imagine if churches had nurseries lined with mangers and that's where you had to lay your newborn babies? Uh, church attendance would plummet. Don't do that. It's a terrible idea. 
When you see a child in a manger, we know who it is. And, and the shepherds arrive that night at the manger scene, and they see Christ lying in a manger wrapped in cloths, and their eyes get wide as saucers, saying, wow, I can't believe this is really happening. And while we're focused on the shepherds and the, their wonder and bewilderment, shift in your mind's eye over to Mary and Joseph. And Joseph, who knew all this stuff, he grew up in the synagogue. He knew about Abraham and about Moses and about David. He knew Psalm 23. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And if there in that moment, Mary and Joseph heard the whisper of the father saying, I know you guys are scared. I know you're terrified. I know that this is not what you had in mind. I know this isn't the life that you two talked about and planned about. I know that you're scared, and if you're not scared yet, you should be because Herod is coming. He's not coming with good plans. But here's what I want you to know. Even though this isn't the life you planned, even though this wasn't what you had in mind, you will never be alone through this. I am your shepherd, and I will take this whole thing personally, and I will go with you every step of this way, and you will never be alone. I was kind of blown away when Chris's song, right before the, the message, uh, we talked a little bit about this message, but him singing out, uh, you are faithful. Never once have we ever been alone. And I almost hear the heart of the Father through those shepherds. So the Lord showed the manger to the shepherds and then he showed the shepherds to Mary and Joseph to say, this is what I will be to you through this whole journey. And for all of us, through all the uncertainty, through all the what-ifs and the fears that are hanging over us, the questions that we're beginning this year with, maybe you need a sign from God and maybe the sign from God for you is the same old one the shepherds got. The child in the manger, the shepherds there, at the birthplace, saying, you will never be alone. If the Lord is your shepherd, you're good. Abraham Lincoln was waiting on that sign from God. And five days after the Battle of Antietam, when he saw that as a decisive sign from God, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. But he didn't spend those five days writing the Emancipation Proclamation. Actually, he had already written it. It was sitting in a desk drawer. He just didn't have the nerve to do anything about it. Which is just... (laughs) Three million people in slavery. The proclamation is there written. He just needs some courage. And I can't help but think about how many of us have a calling or a passion or a gift and it's, it's all ready to go. We know what it is. You know, there's some step that God is asking you to take some bold move, and it's sitting down here in a drawer. You just need the courage to pull it out and do something about it. Again, maybe that sign of God from you, or sign from God for you, isn't something new, but those shepherds, that you have a good shepherd who will never abandon you. Can I switch some from preaching to testifying a little bit here right now? Uh, April 1st this past year, uh, my wife, Tammy, went to work and uh, called me maybe an hour into the day and said, we have to go to the hospital. Her right side had gone numb. Uh, all of a sudden, out of the blue, her right side had gone totally numb. And, uh, of course, that raised all sorts of red flags and concerns. So we jumped in the car, ran to the hospital, and battery of imaging and MRIs and sitting with doctors. Um, they went through all that stuff, and then we're sitting in the waiting room and waiting and waiting. And finally, they come out and they say, well, good news is you didn't have a stroke. You don't have a 
brain tumor, but we don't know what it is. So we go home, <laughs> and her right side is numb. And what do we do then? So in a series of follow-up appointments and more medical appointments than I can remember and trying physical therapy to see if something would come loose, uh, finally, about middle of June, on a Friday, we went in for an appointment with a, with a neurologist who said uh, what she had was Chiari malformation. That's a condition where the, the brain is too big for the skull. And as a result of the brain just running out of space, the tissue of the brain begins to extend down into the spinal canal, and it just creates all sorts of issues for people. For some people, it's blurred vision. In her case, it was numbness on one side. For, we know one person who had surgery for the same thing who he would swear he was walking this way, and he'd walk into the wall over here. His sense of balance is all thrown off. And so what they do for that is they go in and in the back of the head, uh, they remove a piece of the skull permanently and remove some of the brain tissue around the brain and remove most of the C1 vertebrae just to give the, the brain space. And she'll probably always have symptoms for the rest of her life, but that, that was surgery. So early July, she went in for the surgery. I asked the surgeon, should I get checked out for this? And he said, Steve, no one's ever worried about your brain being too big. So don't <laughs> dodge the bullet there. But, but yeah, yeah, so feel bad for me. I will never win another argument in my house again. My wife's brain is medically, it's, it's been proven. It's too big for her skull. Uh, we have an MRI of her brain. I don't want an MRI of my brain because I don't want us to compare it. Uh, I, know it I know how I'm going to fall out on that. Uh, so July 12th, she went in for brain surgery. We have four kids at home. I, I'm a hot mess. <laughs> I was a hot mess in the days leading up to that, trying to be tough and strong and just having to duck into the bathroom every so often just to, let my eyes drain out for a while. Um, surgery went amazingly. The doctors did a beautiful job, amazing job. Hour after surgery, I went in to see her, fully expecting she wouldn't be awake for a while yet. And I walk into the room an hour after surgery, and she smiles at me and gives me a thumbs up and starts complaining about her pillow because her pillow was too hard. And I start blubbering, like, <laughs> I'm sobbing because she's complaining about her pillow. She's like, what's the matter with you? You're alive! You're, you know, <laughs> Just, yeah, what, all I can tell you, and, and we're still in process on this, six months off from surgery, she, went, she was back to, out of the hospital in two days, back to work in like six or eight weeks, was driving within, uh, with less than two months, uh, just amazing, defying the odds, but she'll still probably always have symptoms from this, and, uh, but you know what, God was so good to us through that journey. We sense the presence of the shepherd in our house and in our family and in our marriage every single step of the way. As excruciating as it was to sit there in the waiting room while she's having brain surgery. You know, they got these screens where you can see a status update on your patient. Your person. I probably checked that thing 40 times. I'd go check it, walk back to my seat, come back and check it just for something to do because I was losing my mind. As excruciating as that experience was, The Lord is our shepherd, and we sense his presence through that entire process and even as we go forward. So I don't know what your journey is. I don't know what those big questions that are hanging over your family and your life are. Uh, what those what-ifs are that are drawing an allergic reaction from you might be. Uh, but I want to pray for us this morning because we've all got them. And my prayer for you is that you, have, that you know the good shepherd. And that your song might be able to be like Mary and Joseph and David and, and me. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm good. Even though I walk through a valley of deep, dark uncertainty, I will fear no what-ifs 
because his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Lord, I thank you for this, this great church and for the way you're moving here and for the wonder and the power of your presence. Lord, may you reveal your hand of mercy among all of us and as we wrestle with what-ifs and wrestle with uncertainty, questions hanging over us, may you do it again. Will you do it again? Provide your comfort and peace and protection. Take our struggles personally and be our good shepherd. I pray if there's anyone here who who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior and Shepherd, that they would do that today in the days ahead. Pray this all in the power of Jesus' name and your proven reputation. Amen.